I have one announcement for you, and that is we have a parenting conference called Parenting Through the Stages or the Phases. It's on October 11th and 12th. And what that is, as kids grow up, they act differently at different ages. Don't know if you knew that or not. And so you, you don't really uh, parent kids at 14 the same way you do at 2. Or if you do, you're woefully behind the curve. So what this thing is, it teaches, you know, as parents, how to parent through those different stages and how you will change and how they will change. And it's a, it's a way we wanted to, to have this thing to help you parent better as you go through these different phases and places in life. So it's October 11th and 12th. That's a Friday night and a, and a Saturday morning. You can sign up at the Welcome Center. There is child care available if you need that, but you've got to sign up for it so we know. But that is, that's the one thing I got. So hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes and questions. Go a little bit uh, deeper and reflect on what we're talking about today. So you can grab one of those. You have a smartphone. You can download an app. It is called Version. Click on More and then Events in Version. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. <sighs> My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3, and it says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Let's pray. Every service I do that, everybody goes, wow. Exactly, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who is gracious and good to all of us, and that you set things before us that we would understand the course of our lives and who you are and what you call us into. And so I ask that this morning you would use these words of Solomon's to move us to a place where we understand the end of our days, but how we can live in your grace and hope here and now as we walk through every moment of our lives, trusting and honoring you. Amen. Have a seat. <laughs> it's amen. I hear it, okay? I don't know what you hear. Oh, that's what I hear. <laughs> uh, this is week 24 of the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're following Solomon's quest. And I always like that question, like, what is your quest? What is the air velocity of a, of a swallow? Anyway, uh, and he calls himself the teacher. His quest is to find the meaning of life. And that's why we call this series the Existential Hangover, because what is the meaning of life? Now, a lot of books and movies and TV shows, when people look for the meaning of life, it's got to be some short encapsulated little thing, like uh, 42, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? Everything's like, like 42. And we always want something to put on a poster for an easy answer, uh, like this. It says, failure, it can be painful. The... Every other service, people are like, I don't get it. Whatever. All right. Uh, but, but really, the meaning of life Solomon's going for, I think, in the end, is an upper and not a downer. Solomon, in his quest for this, never really got a final answer. The more he looked in things, the more he struggled to see the answers to his questions. Now, we live thousands of years after Solomon wrote this, and we live after Jesus came. He lived before Jesus came. And all the questions he asked were actually found in the person of Christ. But Solomon, through his life, struggles with all of these questions. In 1755, Samuel Johnson finishes his life work. It is a dictionary of the English language. And when he has finished, he's got a definition for every English word imaginable. But as he gets ready to put this out, he writes a preface to that. And this is what he writes. He says, I saw that one inquiry only gave occasion to another. 
That book referred to book, that to search was not always to find, and to find was not always to be informed. And that thus to pursue perfection was, like the first inhabitants of Arcadia, to chance the sun, which when they had reached the hill where it seemed to rest, was still beheld at the same distance from them. He says, there's the sun. Right? We're going to climb that hill and get closer to the sun. And when they climbed that hill, they realized the sun was just as far away. And this is what Ecclesiastes says. A Solomon's trying to find the answers to all these things. Every hill he climbed, it's still at that next place. And so Ecclesiastes is meant to be a book that we struggle through the pages as we learn to trust God in the midst of all of our questions when we don't have answers. And it's really not the whole idea of what you get at the end of life. It's more what we're made into along the way. The early church father Augustine summarized Ecclesiastes like this. Solomon gives over the entire book of Ecclesiastes to suggesting with such fullness as he judged adequate the emptiness of this life with the ultimate objective to be sure of making us yearn for another kind of life which is no unsubstantial shadow under the sun but substantial reality under the sun's creator. Now Solomon, though at times it may not seem like it, he's trying to give us this God-centered perspective by asking all of the questions that he did and that our present lives are meant to be seen as a gift from God. And this is why he says it is meaningless when we only look for things under the sun, the things that we create with our own hands. He says when we do that, there is injustice in the world. There is things that are hard to accept or understand. There is a, hard, a lot of hard work for us to be doing. But when you trust God in the midst of it, there's also joy to be found. And joy to be lived in the ordinary things of life, like eating and drinking and sharing fellowship with people. And that's where he lands last week. It's kind of where he's going to land this week as well. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, Our life is not only a great deal of trouble and hard work, it is also refreshment and joy in God's goodness. We labor, but God nourishes and sustains. There's a reason to celebrate. God is calling us to rejoice, to celebrate in the midst of our working day. I mean, this is, now you're probably thinking, where's this message going? Because he's got a lot of quotes right up front. Yes, I do, but I'm going to move away from those. Um, so today, Solomon, what he's going to, he's going to drop back to this theme of death. That if we knew the day of our death, it would alter the way in which we live our lives under the sun. Now, when I do funerals, I don't do a lot of funerals, but I do some. And when I do a funeral, I usually say this thing towards the end, where I talk to everybody about our lives and what we're running towards. And I say if we, if we realize the day of our death, we'd probably do things a little bit different than we do now. Like if you ate really fast, you would probably start to eat a little bit slower and maybe savor some of those meals. If you always ate really slow, you might eat a little bit faster and try and get a little more time on the backside. But you probably wouldn't decide to eat all of your meals ordered through a clown head from a high school kid from a microwave, right? You'd probably want something a little bit better than that. If you're married, you would probably start trying to find ways to start overlooking a lot of the petty stuff that you always fight about and look for ways to offer a lot more hope and grace and love into your marriage. If you uh, saved your money your entire life, you might spend a couple things frivolously. If you always spent frivolously, you might try to find a way to save some money so there's something left after you're gone. But we'd most likely get together with friends a little bit more, more fervently. We'd probably hopefully worship God more frequently in our lives. And a lot of the petty things in our lives might begin to start to go away. And Solomon says, because only God knows the day of our death, he said in Ecclesiastes 8, 8, that there's a tendency for us to ignore the certainty of what death is and be careless with our days that God has given us into our hands. And so we ignore all the joy that he's meant for us to live within. And when death comes, we have this very deep regret. 
So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 9, and what you see as you turn there is that, is that Solomon started off in life really well, and then he goes through the middle part of his life and runs off the rails, and now at the end of his life, he's coming back as an old man with a lot of regret and a lot of wisdom at all the things he went through, and he's going to tell us to learn to savor everything that God puts on our plates. He urges us to trust our great Redeemer, to redeem our days, to make the most of everything that we have been given, to stop looking at life as just under the Son, but see eternity, which God is calling us into, that there is grace and there is hope. And so as chapter 9 comes in, I picture Solomon as an old guy with a lot of wisdom, gone through a lot of things, and he's going to explain things different than he did as a young man, because now he has all these miles on his life. And this is where he goes, chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. And that's the beauty here is that as Solomon kind of starts to round out the book, he leaves God's people in God's hands. Now, when the Scripture speaks of God's hands, it's this way to express God's power, God's love, God's supervision, God's control. Like that little kid song, you've got the whole world in his hands. You've got the little bitty babies in his hands. You've got all the crying babies this morning in third service in his hands. Got the you and me something in his whatever it is. Like I didn't pay attention to the song, but our whole lives are in the hands of God. That's what he's saying. Ecclesiastes, God is seen as good, and because God is good and God is sovereign, all the things under the sun we don't understand, we can trust into His hands. Now, in our culture today, that sounds like bad news. Oh, God's in control. God doesn't want me to have any fun. This is why Solomon keeps coming back to the ideas that we're to rejoice in what God has given us under the sun. That God is the one who brings joy, and that we're the ones who mess it up. We are people who actually get to begin to relax because God knows what tomorrow brings because He is the God of tomorrow. Everything has passed through His more than capable hands. This is providence. This is sovereignty. Like the day I was writing this message, Michael Reed, one of the guys that works here, he got strep throat again. He says it's a, day, it's a yearly occurrence for him. And I thought, like, oh, I wrote that down. And I said, healthy or sick, we're in God's hands. Rich or poor, we're in God's hands. Now, don't blame God if you spend all your money on lotto tickets and Slurpees. Like the Cal Lotto is not a good retirement plan. But... Whatever comes to you, we can live in that and begin to embrace it as our lot because we can learn to grow as we walk through it with God himself. And I hope you understand what I'm saying. I am not saying fatalism. You have cancer, you don't fight. No, you fight, you fight. But whatever comes our way when we trust God in it, we can grow through those things. Too many people get mad at how they perceive God has made them. And it never goes well when we want to fight against Him. Some people are naturally good at organization, but they look at their spontaneous friends and they go, I wish I was more spontaneous like all of my friends. No, embrace the organization. You must do that. I know sometimes it probably makes you feel like the killjoy, but without you, the disorganized people would be dead. Okay, disorganized people need the organizers because no one would have planted crops or saved for the future or written anything down for future generations. I mean, think about pumpkin killing, right? Right? If it was all the disorganized people, there would be no pumpkin killing. There'd just be a whole lot of killing pumpkins, like nothing coming together. So you have those organized people. So the disorganized ones can show up and go, what do we do? Put your mark here. Okay, go stand over there. Got it, right? It, so you have the organized people that keep things moving. It's a great thing. Embracing the lot in life that God has given us. Our future can be uncertain, but we can be certain of the God who holds the future and us in His hands, and we walk into it with Him. We are not always privy to all the exact details of what God is doing. And wisdom does not guarantee that life will be without tears, but what wisdom does by trusting God is ensures that all of our tears have meaning. 
That's what it means. And so Solomon now is going to take this and move into this death talk. Chapter 9, verse 2. It is the same for all. That means all share a common destiny. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears as the one who shuns an oath. This is everybody dies. Did you get it? Everybody dies. One ticket. Everybody gets it punched. Everybody dies. And how you view death is going to determine then how you live your life. If you live without a belief in God or eternity, you're going to live one way. If you live with a belief in who God is and Jesus and eternity with him and even ultimately judgment and hell and all that, it's going to, it's going to live a different way. Some people always say, you know, I know hell's terrible. I'm always like, yes, don't go there. You know, it is a terrible place. We don't want that to happen. Or they say, I don't like the idea of hell. Well, neither do I. I mean, hell is this idea of separated from the presence of God. And people don't want to be with God. That's, that's where they get to live, apart from Him. The point is that no matter what we do in life, we are going to die. And how we view how that death is going to come is going to determine many times how we live. You can freeze your head, stick it in a box, hope someone's going to thaw it out one day, but don't hold your breath, right? But once you know God, death can actually turn from this thing that we fear. Like, oh my goodness, I might die. What, what's going to happen? To this thing that we walk into eternity with Him, and we don't fear death anymore. Because God holds all things in His hands, and it's beautiful. We get the gift to be free from sin in our lives and step into eternity with Him every single day. And so when Solomon ponders this, he finds certain things perplexing under the sun. When we want to judge who is righteous and who is evil and what kind of things happen to them, he says we find it perplexing. So this is what he says again. The same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun. That evil there means it's something he doesn't understand, not good in his own mind. The same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So here he starts to connect death and sin together. What Ecclesiastes teaches throughout it is that we hate death. Rightly so. We were made for something more. God has put eternity in the hearts of man. We weren't built for death. We were meant to live forever with the living God. And in Genesis, we're told when sin enters the world through our own choice, it ravages and destroys the life that we were meant to live. And the only way for us to get rid of death is for God to come and rescue us. Because we can never do it on our own. We have all sinned. We've all run from God. We've all rebelled against Him. And so what does God do in our rebellion? He comes as Jesus to rescue us and bring us back into relationship with him. This is what all Solomon was looking forward to. And Solomon says people who don't fear God, they they hide this wickedness in their hearts just like Adam did in the garden when he ran away from him. I I got an example of this. Um, At baptisms that we just had, towards the end, there's this couple tables and they still got desserts on them with cookies on them. And so everybody's kind of eating, but the cookies are still there. And I look over and I see two bags of Albertson's chocolate chip cookies. I love the Albertson's chocolate chip cookies. So I look at them all, oh, yeah, what's going to happen with that? People are going to eat those. Um, So I walk over, and I grab the two bags, and I go walk into my house. And at that point, someone goes, hey, Aaron, bye. And I'm like, "Uh." right? I'm like a double-fisted cookie glutton. that's, That's what I am at that moment. This is what we do with God all the time, right? God gives us good gifts. 
Such great things. And what do we do? We run the opposite direction of what he calls us to with them. I mean, here, here is, here's alcohol, right? What do we do? We get drunk and we can't walk straight. And oh my goodness, that's what we do with it. God gives the, the good gift of relationships and what, and what sexuality is meant to be. And what do we do? We make pornography and we, and we run around sleeping with whoever. And we run all these crazy ways with it. We're like people stealing suckers out of God's candy jar. And Solomon is saying, no one's going to get away with it. It just doesn't happen that way. We can't say, oh God, look how righteous and good I am because we've all taken the suckers out of God's jar and ran away with them. He says it's the same for all. And under the sun, what Ecclesiastes is doing is trying to say we are all the same in the end. Yes, we may look at people and see the righteous and the good and the clean who offer sacrifices to God. And then there's the wicked and the evil and the unclean, those who don't make any holy sacrifices to God. It's like we look around and we see people, oh, they made vows, so, so they're the good people and they didn't, so they're the, they're the bad guys over there. The comparison is who honors God, who doesn't honor God, yet both groups suffer the same fate. The same event happens to them all. What he's saying is, if there's heavy storms, the righteous and the wicked, both their houses can get flooded. Uh, if, if there's an economic downturn, both people can lose all the money they have. If there's something like, a, like an earthquake, uh, both of their houses can fall apart. It, too often, Christians walk around and we think that we have the favor of God. And we can tell who has the favor of God under the sun because of how their lives are going. And if you really love God, terrible things wouldn't happen to you because God just wants to bless your life. And what Solomon is saying is you can't cannot do that under the sun. You cannot tell the righteous from the wicked by what happens in their lives. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And that frustrates Solomon because he thinks, I should be able to tell the difference. I should be able to see what's happening around. At the end of verse 3, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live and after that they go to the dead. This again is, who are the children of man? All of us. All of us, right? And so there's no one righteous, no, not one. And that is one of the most frustrating things that Solomon comes across. He's like, I want to be able to tell the difference. I want to be able to, but he can't, nobody can. At the end of chapter 8, he ends by denying that anyone can ever know the works of God in the world apart from God revealing them to us. He reminds us how desperately and discouragingly sinful we all are. And when Solomon talks about madness, Philip Ryken defines it as a moral wildness that is impetuous and irrational. How many of the good things that God gives us do we run away impetuous and irrational about? How dare God tell me how to use this thing this way? I'm going to use it how I want to use it. We're all like little children. Yes, in the world, people commit acts of violence and they kill one another. But we also gossip against one another. We pursue self-destructive addictions. We hurt the ones we are called to love the most by trying to twist the screws and we get angry with them. And in the end, we die because death is the great leveler. And no matter how well we think we are or how well we think we're going, our life and our time on earth will end in death. It's like that bumper sticker, eat well, stay fit, die anyway. Right? Right? And so God has a different way. God calls us throughout Ecclesiastes how to trust Him, how to walk with Him, how to understand that we may not have all the answers, but we can know Him and we can walk with Him. And a beautiful word that the Old Testament Scriptures use for this is this word called repentance. Repentance isn't like someone with a sandwich board, repent, the end of the world is near. Repent means to return, to come home to who God is calling us to be, to rest and trust in Him, who He is in light of His grace. And so Solomon then goes on, chapter 9, verse 4, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. 
For a living dog is better than a dead lion. You'd rather be a dog or a lion. I choose lion. I know it's a cat, but it's a big cat, right? If it was just cat and dog, you'd choose dog every time. But, but you know, it's, it's, it's this idea. It, it doesn't carry the same weight in our culture, but dogs in this culture, they were despised. They were despised. Living dog, dead lion is actually a proverb in that day. Lions were noble. The symbol of the house of King David was a lion. It's like a, like a Lannister. The emblem of Jesus is a lion. Dogs at this time, they were not pets. They were scavengers, and they went around and ate anything that they could find. As a matter of fact, in 1 Samuel 17.3, when David stands against Goliath, Goliath looks at David and says, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? That's what he says. All to say, what Solomon is saying, it's better to be alive. You may not like the circumstances you are in your life right now, but it's better to be alive. Why? Verse 5. For the living know that they will die. You know what's coming. You can live differently. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. It's the idea that we can lose so much in death, where eventually we become forgotten by other people. I told you this over the last few weeks that you know, my friend Trevor died a few years ago. And there are times I remember him. I made it into the message, right? <laughs> but, but not like I did after he first died in those first few months. I don't, I don't remember him as much as I used to. Uh, Bev Lear, the lady used to play keyboard with her. She had these big old hats. We called her the hat lady. And she always wore these different colored, colored hats. And she died a couple years ago. And I remember you know, those first weeks or months after she died, I thought about her a lot. But I... I don't think about her as much. Again, she made it into the message, so I do think about her sometimes. But, you know, there used to be this thing called the Rat Pack, like Frank and Sammy and Dean, something, I don't know. But they were it, right? Everybody knew who, who they were. And now when no one really knows who they were anymore at all. At some point, we die. People begin to forget who we are. Memory fades. How many loved ones do you have that when they first passed away, you remembered them all the time? And now maybe some time has gone by. And it's not bad that you don't think about them all the time. You have to live your life but it starts to fade just a little bit. Verse 6, Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. And the perspective of this, this is all the petty stuff in our lives. The, I hate them, I'm jealous of them, how dare they look better in those jeans than I do. You know, all these these petty things. You know, Solomon says you're going to die. So what are you going to do with your days? How are you going to live these out? Is the energy to hate or be jealous or even the things you love, is it even worth it? Like if you're dating somebody right now, are they worth it forever, forever? And if you're like, I don't think so, then then be done with that. Solomon's trying to sober us up. Is what you spend your life on worth it forever? It's a terrible plan to waste your money and your love and your life and your energy to stand before God and see everything wasted. But this is why Solomon keeps coming back to showing that God has this plan B. There is a better way. We don't have to live focused on just what's under the sun. We can look beyond what is under the sun to the eternity God calls us to. And he will summarize it in verse 9 with these words that say, Enjoy life with the one you love. i got to tell you, that sounds better than the poke in the eye with a sharp stick. It really does. It sounds better than trying to make myself relevant on social media every single day. It sounds better than being discontent all the time. We are running headlong towards death, to the end of our earthly joy and our earthly work. And so what Solomon says is, trust who God is. God has loved you. God has pursued you. So pursue him in righteous good times. And he tells you how to do that in the following ways. And he lands where he kind of landed last week. Verse 7, he says, so go eat your bread with joy. Sounds like Oprah wrote that verse, right? I love bread, right? So what it's saying is, the paleo diet is not the way to live. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This is just... Food, not gluttony, okay? Go eat your bread with joy. Solomon says, you're going to die soon, so eat something you like. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. 
Guys, as clear as I can be, what he's saying here is that God's people should be able to eat and drink and avoid consumption that leads to despair. If you eat or drink out of despair, that's not joyful consumption. It's meant to be in a way that brings people together and you find joy and you worship God in the midst of it. I don't know if you have ever been to a good party. I am not talking about a drunken kegger with light beer and two-for-one pizzas, but I'm talking about a place where your stomach is full and so is your soul, where you're sitting and you're meeting with people and you look at the clock and like four or five hours have gone by and you're like, where did the time go? Because you laugh and you're having joy. with That's what I'm talking about. And if we are a people who decide we're never going to eat any good food and we're never going to drink anything that other people have deemed evil, we're never going to spend money on something fun, it doesn't make you holy. What Solomon is saying, sometimes it just makes you weird because holiness by abstention is not holiness. Alcohol, money, food, a life lived, offered to Jesus, that's what makes it good because we are living our redemption out in practical ways in the world. Jesus didn't abstain. He lives in a redeemed way. And we understand because God is in control of this life and the life to come, living now shows we love God. And I think people who don't learn how to trust God, they freak out with every circumstance that comes into their lives because they think everything has to be under the dominion and their own control, and it doesn't have to be. Solomon keeps telling us, you can't control anything, so trust God. So where does he go, right? You, you get together, you eat and drink, and then he says, verse 8, let your garments be always white. Now, white garments were the dress-up clothes in the Middle East. Uh, interesting, uh, white was worn by war heroes in victory parades. It was worn by priests on the most holy days. And it was worn by slaves when they attained their freedom. And so what he's saying is dress up for each other. Not to sound sexist or anything here, but uh, we should be people who dress up for each other. Uh, ladies, if you've got, you got a boyfriend or you're married, how many of you like to see your man dressed up? All I hear, oh, raise your hand. Don't just, oh, okay. Right, okay, well, some of you don't. Guys, take note of that. Okay, wear the sweats, you're fine. Uh, but the rest of you, you know, learn how, to, learn how to dress up. Take a shower, shave, use some deodorant. It's a good thing. Uh, th- take them out to dinner where you actually get to sit down. So often what people do when they get married is they just kind of give up. They kind of give up. They dress different. They don't take care of themselves anymore. Like some guys are like, oh, let's just go to dinner at the buffet. And then you wear your elastic waistband because you're going to fill it up by the time you get there. Uh, lunch is not meant to be an afternoon at the Costco samples, unless she likes it, okay? Then, then that's fine. But many people, men and women both, what they do is they court and they attract someone and then they get married. And as soon as they get married, it's like over. It's supposed to continue. It's supposed to continue. In this context of what Solomon has said so far, it indicates that God's people were meant to dress up for each other, to go and throw parties with one another and hang out where, there, where there's good food and good drink and we enjoy life with one another and we celebrate God's grace and enjoy God's people and make the most of God's gift of life. He goes on and says, Let not oil be lacking on your head. That is not a comment on how often you shampoo. Okay? What that is, in this culture, in the hot and dry climate, God's people were to take the time and the money uh, needed to take care of their skin so they would look healthy and they would feel good. Now, I think for a lot of women, this isn't a problem. Again, not to be sick, but, but my wife has like all this. It's like a witch's cauldron over there. It's like, oh, put all the stuff together. And, you know, I, I don't know what goes on over there, right? So, ladies, guys, okay, what that could mean is get some lotion, okay? Put some lotion on your hands. Don't touch that lovely woman with your scaly hands. You know, shave so you don't rip her face off with your sandpaper face. If, if she likes a mustache or a beard, use some product. Make it feel nice. So when you, when you hug her and get next to her, she's like, oh, I like that. That's a gift. It's beautiful. I, I love going places with my wife because she smells good. A guy can never replicate the way that is. 
And so, guys, learn to dress up and love the women in your life. Ladies, again, not being sexist, but uh, dress up, shave your legs, not like those French women. Uh, Okay, all right. Take care of yourself. We take care of ourselves for each other. We eat good, we laugh, we drink, we love, because that means we understand that we don't have to be in control, because God is, and we can live like Christians who are redeemed in the world, trusting and loving God in everything. And so what Solomon goes in this is have these parties, dress up, smell better than you normally do, right? Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Now Solomon, 700 wives, 300 concubines. And I think through all of that, he probably never knew what love really was. And at the end of his life, he looks back on all of this stuff and he's like, I wish I had someone to love. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. God placing somebody into our lives is meant to be seen as God's good gift. And I'm not saying singleness can't be a good gift. It's God places us in each other's lives to lift one another up and do life with each other. And yet sometimes when people get to the place where they get married, they see it as a right and not a great gift from God. And we stop treating one another as the precious gift that they're meant to be. And again, I'm going to sound old-fashioned in some things when I say this, but I think a lot of us need to take Solomon's advice. I think we need to you know, dress up, speak kind words, learn how to serve one another by what we do. I think we can all be spouses and friends to one another who learn how to speak words of grace and kindness to each other in all that we do in our vain life lived under the sun. And the Bible will speak about two kinds of wives, but you have to understand the culture, okay? Today we would say two kinds of spouses. You know, it's the idea that some are enjoyable and some are painful. You, sometimes you meet somebody, and it's like, why is that person always downcast? Then you see their spouse, and you're like, uh-huh, I get it, right? So Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Again, that's written in this culture. Culturally speaking today, we would say that A husband or a wife could both be that rot in somebody else's bones. And so what it's telling us is when you find someone that you're going to spend life with, it's it's this idea that we love and pour into one another. We give grace and goodness all the time to each other. The scriptures will say it's, it's better to live on the corner of a roof than with a quarrelsome spouse who wants to argue all the time. It means you, we are people who are meant to be careful and, and be love the ones that we marry, be enjoyable. And the people who do have that gift in their life at that point, they're privileged and, they, and you want to share every kiss, every hug, every love that you can with one another where you take every chance to make each other laugh, where you're quick to forgive, where you're quick to, to open and extend your arms to one another to walk through this life with Jesus under his banner. And it's because God has given us this gift and he is so wonderful. For me, my life wouldn't be what it is without the joy that my wife brings. Uh, My wife typically does not raise her voice to me except when I push, and I push a lot because I like to argue, so go figure. Uh, My wife typically gets what she wants, but I think in the end, men and women learn how to understand they are the gift to one another. And we give of ourselves to each other in ways that honor God with the redemption that we have first been given. And I think God places us in each other's lives to make each other's lives happier by being enjoyable to each other. And I think, again, that can happen in murder relationships and also in friendships. We learn how to step into each other's lives and show who God is by how we love one another and draw one another closer together. He says, this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. 
Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. That's the grave to which you are going. And again, it comes back to this idea that our joy in life is connected to this place where we can accept the lot in life that God has placed in our hands at the moment. All that God has given us. Rather than hopeless fatalism, oh, we can never get out of it, what Solomon speaks of is hopeful faith. Whether you are married or not. Whether you have children or not. Whether you have lots of friends or just a few friends. Whether you have a great family or a crazy family. How do you find out what your lot in life is? How do you understand what that is? You start by living with Jesus. We trust him in all things because he has rescued us. So we start living that out under the sun. Yes, life can be short. And so we take what God has placed into our hands and we live that loving him in all that we do because he's first loved us. Whatever the, We take the time and the energy and make the most of life. Rather than coveting what everybody else has, we take what he has placed in our hands and live that out with him in everything we do. And this is the wisdom of understanding life and death. Because it is true that our work time is limited. And if that's true, then we must be a people who begin to center our lives on the good news of Jesus' rescue of us. It means that, as Solomon says, we become a people who repent of our sin. Repent means return to who God calls us to be. That Jesus is the great salvation that, that we have been given. And he is the only one we can ever have. If I understand the great truths of the gospel of God's rescue of us, we will then begin to be a people who can serve our neighbors, who can begin to love the good life that God has given us in our moments. We can become a people who can love our neighbors in ways that actually love them. That We do the kingdom things because we understand that God has first loved us. And when the scriptures talk about this, it speaks of an urgency. It actually says the time being short. And some Christians read that and they say, I don't have any time for fun. I can't, I've just got to go and do all these God things out in the world. Well, no. When you read the scriptures, many times those things, the time is short. It means we learn how to live this life that God has placed in our hands now. That our joy is also a great witness for who he is. Yes, there are times of struggle. Yes, there are times that we work really hard. But it's only in response to what he has first done for us. I think the right kind of enjoyment are going to prove the best preparations for eternity. Like C.S. Lewis says, our earthly pleasures are telling us that we're made for something more. More than what's just here. I think any honest day's work brings us one day closer to our eternal rest. I think every good meal is a reminder that we've been invited to the best of all banquets. And every God-centered party anticipates this heavenly celebration that will never end. And the way that we step into that is the good news of what the gospel is. That we are a people who Solomon keeps talking about who are hopelessly sinful. And we are so lost. And yet we always try to make it up on our own. I'm going to prove to God how good I am. We will never be able to do that because we're never good enough on our own. And this was why God steps in to rescue us. To say, stop working so hard to make me love you and understand I do love you. I sent my son to bring you so you can come back into relationship with me again. This is what we talk about at communion. When you break the cracker like Christ's body that was broken, you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me that all of our sin, all the things that stood between us and God and us and one another were taken care at the cross in the person of Christ. That God is calling us to himself. That God is bringing us back to himself by what he has done. Yes, God is sovereign over the times and the season. He's got the whole world in his hands. But yes, he also has us specifically in his hands. And because he loves us, he draws us into himself. And that changes everything. That our, our hope of salvation and our hope of redemption and our hope of life is not built upon what we do. It is built upon what he has done. 
And when we can rest and trust in that, it brings great peace to our lives because we're not always trying to sort it all out. We trust him. We walk through the things that he has given us in our lives and we can grow closer to him on the backside of it. Everything we go through can draw us closer to him when we trust him in the midst of it. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you guys to take communion. There's going to be some uh, deacons in the back. If you guys need prayer, they'd love to pray with you. Maybe you're in a place today where you're doing all these things to make God like you or, or make you acceptable in his sight or you know, all these things we're always trying to do to kind of fake God out, to make him think we're better than we are. God knows how, what we are. God knows how terrible we are, and that's why Jesus came to die for us. But Ken, we can never take care of our own sins on our own. This is why God rescues us. It's why the only hope we have is resting in that rescue and not in ourselves or in our own minds, what we think we can make up to make ourselves acceptable to God. The only thing that does is Christ and his sacrifice given to us. We trust him and we begin to live that out in this world in a way that reflects who he is and all that we do. Because we have been given such a great salvation. And yet so often I don't think we get it. We're always trying to work for it, to figure it out on our own. But we need to be a people who learn to trust and rest in that salvation that we have been given. Because only by doing that are we going to be able to live out the joy-filled life that God calls us to. And joy doesn't always mean happy. Joy is this deep-seated contentment with who God is and living those things out in our lives no matter where we are. And so if you are someone who's struggling in that, they would love to pray with you this morning. Uh, There are offering boxes next to every single door. And we give because God gave so much to us, giving as part of our worship. You have the opportunity to do that every single week. Uh, There is some food and snacks outside on the tables. You can uh, grab some snacks, take some sermon notes, and maybe this week talk to people about, you know, what things in your life are you afraid to let go of? Are there places in your life that you feel are are maybe a little out of control when you can't trust God's sovereignty? Do Do you fear death? and what that great equalizer looks like, and why do you fear death, and why do you not need to fear death, and what does God's great love look like as it's spoken over us? Talk to one another about that. Walk through those things so we would be a people who come to a place where we simply trust him in all things because he's good, and he leads us into his grace. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us in how you are solidity in the midst of the vapor in which we live that there's so many things under the sun that are so temporary that we put so much effort and energy into. All these things that aren't necessarily going to last. And you're constantly getting us to reset and refocus upon who you are and what you have said and what you have done for us. So our hearts and lives and minds and focus would change to see you as you are. Because only by seeing you as you are are we ever going to come to the place where we stop seeking and striving, where we stop being so self-centered, where we stop being so worried about what everybody else around us is doing. And we can simply come to the place where we trust you for all that we are. God, we thank you that you don't just hold the entire world in your hands, you also hold us specifically. And when we understand that, we can then step out into this world and interact in a way that reflects the great hope that we have, that we can love because you first loved us. That understanding your rescue of us would change all that we are. It would change our focus. It would change the things that we connect ourselves to. 
and the things that we give ourselves to. Father, have us trust you for all that we are and all that we will ever be. Have us to live as Christ because you are our great rescuer. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.